Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Wait a minute. Um, they don't want him to be senior pastor, do they? Uh, it was only about six months after I'd gotten here that uh, Pastor Tom started accelerating the pace of uh, needing to step out of a full-time role as senior pastor. And I'd been here about six months. I'd been a senior pastor for 12 years before in St. Louis. And, and Joey had been here for about six or seven years at the time, was also very gifted and very bright and I think both of us in different ways were asking that same question. Wait, they, they don't want him to be, they're actually going to make him the senior pastor because we both could see how we were gifted, we were called, and I don't mind working with, with that guy, but I don't know about working for that guy. And as we started talking about that openly and, and talking with the elders and praying through that and, and exploring what's best not just for ourselves, but for Faith Church, we really, God was able to help us step back from that and really come to see we're going to be a lot better together than we are apart. And it doesn't have to be one person being ahead of the other or one person serving the other while the other leads. We could actually serve each other and build off each other's strengths and maybe even learn from each other. And in the process of exploring this co-pastoring model that we've been in for two and a half years now, which has gone really well, I think, we looked at other churches that had gone down a similar path and saw where it had worked and where it had failed. And where it had failed was where there were guys that needed to be in charge, needed to win, needed to have their agenda advanced, needed to have the recognition. And where it could succeed is where you had guys who were willing to work together to see each other succeed, to see each other recognized, to see each other put forward, to cheer on one another's success. Now, we honestly don't have it all figured out. I mean, we're still in process of working through this because we're just different, right? I mean, I'm 16 years older and a foot taller. Uh, I'm better at tennis and Joey is better at fixing things. Uh, he's mechanically inclined. Uh, we're, we're both kind of nerdy, and, and we both wear glasses, but we have different experiences, different backgrounds, different priorities, different things that we'd like to see God doing in ministry and in the church and in the community and, and in the world. And that takes work to say we want to be together for the sake of advancing what we have in common instead of focusing on what makes us different and and what sets us apart. It's a challenge to prefer one another over ourselves, wanting others to succeed. Maybe you've had struggles like that. It's hard to see others 
get ahead. Maybe it feels like I'm going to miss out, or why don't people see what I'm doing, or what's special about me? Why aren't people acknowledging me? Maybe it's even ended up in conflict for you. Maybe some of you are in conflict right now, and you're wondering, is it worth even trying to keep it together? Because in some ways, it's just easier to walk away and wash my hands of it. Well, I think there were similar problems going on in the church at Philippi. It comes up a little later in the book, but I think it's in the background in the text that we're looking at today. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing in this series, seeing how Jesus shines his light into the darkness of our lives and the world. And today we want to see the difference that Jesus makes. Now, the church in Philippi doesn't have some huge blow-up going on. It's not like Corinth. There's not, you know, open rebellion and factions. But there is some division that Paul's going to address specifically in chapter 4. And even in the best of churches, like here in Philippi, where, where he's not having to correct a lot of things, there's conflict. There can be tension. Even in the best of families, we struggle to get along, to appreciate one another, to love each other well. We We have different ideas, different opinions, different priorities, different perspectives, different things that we value. And that's just human nature. I mean, God is doing great things here at Faith Church. We're a healthy congregation, but even in healthy churches, there's always that struggle of exactly what Paul is talking about here today. Because no matter how long we've known Jesus, we all want our own way. We want to advance our interests. We want to promote the things that are important to us. And and what do you do with that? Paul identifies the source of conflict here. Did you you see that? In verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, Now, some Bibles, some of your translations may say rivalry or factions. And uh, we know what rivalry and and factions and divisions are. He goes on to talk about conceit, or maybe in your translation, uh, empty conceit. I've always wondered about that. I I don't know what meaningful conceit would be, or, you know, like really full-on conceit, just empty conceit. Well, Paul's getting at something significant here. If you have uh, an ASV or a King James Version your verse there may say vainglory. That's just what the Greek is getting at here. I mean, it sounds like an old Shakespeare word, and it is, but, it, but it's a really good one. It's not one we talk about much. But it's reflecting just what Paul is saying here. It's literally empty or useless glory. Paul is saying conflict comes from competition that is rooted in our pursuit of an empty kind of glory. What what does that mean? Well, well, Paul is putting forth a really key biblical thought here. And here's the background. That deeply rooted in us is a drive for some kind of recognition, significance, glory. In the the Greek, glory carries this uh, sense of majesty and splendor. In the Hebrew, it's related to the word for 
weightiness or heaviness. Now, most of us are not looking to put on extra weight, right? But it's the idea that, that uh, we are going to be big, we're going to be important. And that's what glory is related to. It, it's about our drive to affirm that we matter, that we have significance. And the background to this is that when God created humanity, our significance came from the fact that we were made in His image, we lived in perfect relationship with Him, and we were carrying out His mission in the world. And our first parents rebelled against that and said, no, we will define meaning and morality for ourselves without reference to God. But the drive for glory and significance did not go away. And so now we look for ways to show that we matter. We end up competing with one another to lift ourselves above other. That's the rivalry, the competition that Paul is talking about here. I think that I will matter and others will see that I matter when there's something that distinguishes me from them. I went to a fairly prestigious uh, liberal arts college. It was well-known for successful parents sending their successful kids to get trained to be even more successful out in the world. And uh, they produced a lot of successful people in business and academia and politics and, and government. And so we didn't have particularly good sports teams. Uh, and, and we would uh, be in the stands, for example, at a basketball game where we're getting humiliated by losing 10 or 20 points to, to some state school. And somebody would start the chant, that's all right, that's okay, you're going to work for us someday. <laughs> yeah, it seemed funny at the time too. <laughs> we get together with people who share our interests, our background, our, our values, our strengths. And then that shared interest becomes a way of defining ourselves in rivalry and competition against others. You know, in high school, the jocks were the cool kids and looked down on the nerds, and the nerds like me would get together and join in computer club and make fun of the jocks. And, you know, people who like classical music or indie music make fun of people who like top 40 music and, and on and on. See, if I'm the smartest person in the room, for me, that, that makes me significant. I've been, I've been noticing lately how much I talk. I mean, it's an occupational hazard, I guess, at one level. But I always want my opinion to be heard. Right? I, want, I want people to notice how fortunate they are to have me in the room because of my insights and, and my intelligence. I mean, some of it is just, again, from being a pastor. Some of it is wanting to help people. Some of it is wanting to help people see how smart I am. It's vainglory. It's seeking significance in a, in a kind of glory that doesn't matter. Maybe your significance comes from all that you've done, all that you've accomplished, all, all that you mark off your to-do list. And you work hard and, and, and you're faithful and you show up and, and you serve and, and maybe you notice it even bothers you when somebody gets more recognition for the work they're doing. 
You take pride in, in how much you do. And failure is devastating. And, and that can show up in a thousand different directions. Our careers, our income, our job titles, our kids become the measure of our significance and our, and our glory. If my kids are doing well, well, it's because I'm a great parent. And if I'm successful enough as a parent or professional, you know, maybe I'll get invited to write books or speak at seminars, and then more people can know how they could be like me if only they do what I do, and, and don't I look good? And when others don't recognize how good you're doing, maybe you get angry or depressed or resentful, and, and it becomes easy to look down on people who aren't working as hard or who aren't as successful as you are. Maybe, it, maybe that's not it. Maybe you find significance from being a good person, from supporting the right causes, from having the right opinions. It could be patriotism or environmentalism or vegetarianism or any kind of ism. You want people to notice how right-thinking you are. You, you send your kids to public school? Oh, wait, you're one of those weird homeschoolers? Oh, you live in Carmel? Oh, you live in Indianapolis? You read those books? You don't read books? You drink alcohol? You don't drink alcohol? You're a Calvinist? You're not a Calvinist? It's like life is one big episode of Survivor. And we're all trying to convince the other people not to vote us off the island. I, I'm, I'm worthy. I, you need me here. I, so look at me. We're seeking glory, something that sets us apart, something that gives us significance. Look at, look at how else this gets lived out in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Paul tells us that because it doesn't come naturally to us. Whose interests are we normally looking out for? Our own. When you got up this morning and got dressed for church, who were you concerned about how they looked? You, right? Now, if I said, I noticed on the way in here that somebody had a big stain on their shirt, whose shirt are you going to look at? You're looking at your own shirt. It's not me, is it? We all look at our own shirt. We don't look at our neighbor's shirt to make sure they look okay. We're looking at our shirt to make sure I look okay. I mean, be honest, when we look at any picture that we are in, what is the first thing we notice? It's us, right? And that becomes the measure of whether or not it's even a good photo, right? Oh, that's a great photo. Look at it. I mean, everyone else can look horrible. I mean, eyes closed and mouths open and weird hand position, but, but I look good. Oh, the photographer did a wonderful, I mean, you, somebody could be caught in mid-sneeze and you're like, oh, that's a great photo of me. Let's frame that one. That's what we do, Paul says. And how does Paul deal with that? How, what's, what's the answer? Cut it out. Stop it. Don't, don't do that. Clean up your act. No. No, he reminds us of what God has done for us, who Jesus is for us. He wants us to see the difference that Jesus makes for us. That's what he lays out in, in the first couple of verses here. Did you notice that? When he says all these if statements, it, it's not... You know, like, maybe these things are true. He's saying, since these things are true, if you have any encouragement in Christ, has God encouraged you in Christ? 
with what he has done and who you are and what you are worth? Does God build you up? Paul says, then, then how does that get worked out towards others? How do you encourage and build up others? If you've received any comfort from love, and the implication there is any comfort from God's love, have you ever been comforted, consoled by God's love for you in Christ? If that's true, Paul is saying, how, how does that get reflected in the way that you give comfort to others? If you've been comforted in Christ's love, does that make a difference in how you look at it and share that with others? Any affection or sympathy or, or compassion, Paul says. Have you received any of that from God in Christ? Any participation in the Spirit. Oh, are you glad that you are a part of God's family? That you have been adopted into His family? That you have been made an heir with Christ and, and now you have brothers and sisters? If you have known that, does that make you want others to know that and to experience it? And if you have known those things, does that show up in your life? Does the love and the mercy, the affection and the sympathy of Christ show up? Does it, does it lead you to forgive when you've been wronged? Does it lead you to love others as you have been loved? Does it help you forgive when you've been wounded and when people don't even ask for forgiveness? Does it move you to serve instead of waiting to be served? See, God does not ask you to give anything that he has not given to you. Do you see that? Because, Paul is saying, because you have encouragement in Christ and comfort from his love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, now you can give these things. Paul, God is not asking you to give something you have not received. And he's not asking you to do anything that he has not done for you. Has God loved you? Has God forgiven you? Has God reached out to draw you into his family? Has God shown you affection and kindness? Oh, I hope we can all say yes and amen. And if God came here and humbled himself and became a servant and died on a cross for you to lift you up, then you matter. You matter to the only one whose opinion matters. Do you see that? Do you see what Paul is saying here? Then why would I need to find a glory for myself and try and get it from other people? Do you see how Paul is taking us to the very source of the conflict and the pride and the self-seeking? To, to lift us beyond all of that. See, he's saying when, when we find our identity and our significance in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that sets us free. Jesus frees us from rivalry and competition and pride and self-seeking because of the encouragement, the comfort, the sharing in the spirit, the affection, the sympathy that God has given us in his son. It frees us from needing to be smarter or more successful or, or more moral 
or more recognized than somebody else. Because that's the exact opposite of what Jesus did, isn't it? And that's what Paul's going to get into and Joey's going to help us see next week. Jesus did the opposite. He went all the way down to ultimate humiliation in obedience to the Father. But because now God has exalted him to the highest place, if you are in Christ, you are exalted with him. And now, now we follow the same path of actually going down into humiliation in laying aside ourselves in order to experience the same glory and fullness. That's what Paul is saying. That humbling ourselves in love to serve others is what brings us glory. Loving humility leads to lasting glory. Loving humility leads to the significance, the worth, the weightiness that we long for. But, but this is so important. We have to understand Paul is not saying Jesus is an example to follow. Yes, he is, but that will kill us unless we know he's also the Savior who transforms us. See, if we just read this as a list of commands, do this, love people more than yourself, look not only to your own interests, it becomes another law that we cannot keep and it will crush us. But what does Paul say? If, if you have encouragement in Christ, out of the comfort from his love, because of your participation in the Spirit, since you know his affection and sympathy, then here is how Jesus helps you live. Because you know those things, because you've received those things. This is not behavioral adjustment. It is a new way to see ourselves and a new way to live. That's what changes our heart, our motivations, our attitudes, and, and ultimately our actions. There's a reason we become humble. There's a reason we become more loving and forgiving. It's not because we try harder. It's not because we tell ourselves, this is what I ought to do. It's because we have been forgiven. We have been loved. We have received mercy and kindness and sympathy. We, we can't try harder to make this happen on our own. We, we can't even pray, if I can put it this way, to make this happen if that prayer is not also connected to faith in Christ through the gospel, giving us a new life and a new power from outside ourselves. You know, when our kids were little, we uh, played a game with them. Mom or dad would take a balloon, and we'd blow it up, and uh, we'd have fun just sort of batting it around the room, right? Do you ever play that who can keep the balloon up in the air the longest and you know we'd pass it around and the different kids would pat it and we'd see how many hits can we get and and how can we keep the air up in the balloon you have to keep hitting the balloon to keep it up because it has no power of its own right and sometimes that's the way we can be spiritually Maybe we come here on Sunday or, or you turn on Christian radio or you turn on the news and you hear the latest crisis the latest need the, the, the latest appeal and it feels like, you know, you're getting batted around. Give, serve, pray, forgive, love, forget yourself. Go out, reach out, and, and you do pretty good for a few days or maybe a week, and then you come back and, and 
you start to fade and, and pow, you get lifted up again and, and you, you hear another message and, and you come in to get propped up and week after week you come with your balloon sagging and, and you come here to have me prop you back up and, and pop you up, right? That's what you pay me for. Maybe you take a few weeks off so you can heal from being batted around like a balloon. There's another kind of balloon, though. Our kids discovered that as much as we tried to keep the knowledge from them. At fancy kids' birthday parties or at nice restaurants, you could go in and you'd get the special expensive balloon that you don't have to hit to keep up in the air. It has not literally a power. It has a source from outside itself that actually comes to live inside it and enable it to do what it couldn't do on its own, which is fly, float, rise above where it normally would be. You put a different kind of life and enablement inside it. It's a completely different way to live. That's what Paul is talking about here. You live out of what Jesus has done for you. And it doesn't just give you new power, it gives you new perspective. It gives you new priorities and how you live. It gives you a new way of measuring success and significance. And, and that leads to the difference then that Jesus makes through us. Think about this maybe in terms of uh, money, lifestyle. No matter how much you earn, any of us individually, we all kind of tend to figure out who's in about the same station of life, and then we start comparing ourselves to what they have versus what we have. Do they have a nicer home? Do they have newer cars? Do they take bigger, better vacations? How come they have a second home and I don't have a second home? How come they have that and, and I don't? I mean, don't deny it. We all do it, Right? I mean, we just, we measure ourselves that way. But when you take a step back from it, I mean, just at a practical level, most people statistically are carrying huge amounts of credit card debt. I mean, they're, they're funding those lifestyles by going into debt. And so one, if you're going to live biblically according to God's wisdom and not just borrow money to fund your extravagant lifestyle, you're going to live wisely according to God's principles. You're going to live a step below people who are roughly in your same station of life because they're borrowing to fund a lavish lifestyle. But then more significantly, if you really get serious about giving faithfully to support a local church that you're a part of, you give faithfully and generously to support missions and ministries that are advancing the gospel around the world, that's going to take you down another two or three levels. And that's going to make a noticeable difference in where you live and what your home looks like and what kind of cars you drive and how often you buy new clothes and how often you go out to eat. And, and that's going to make you look different. So Paul says, out of the encouragement in Christ, out of comfort from his love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy count others as more significant than yourselves that doesn't come naturally to us are you willing to live 
below your means? Are you willing to live below where people of your stature and job and income tend to live in the, in the kind of lifestyle they experience out of love for Christ and out of a desire to see his mission advance in the world? Because you're considering others' interests and not just your own. You're willing to live below where you could live so that you can reflect the sympathy and the love and the priorities of Jesus. To bless people the way that you've been blessed. You know, it's not just young people, but uh, really anymore, they say people have two or three or four careers now. And, and as we're considering those things, the direction of our lives, schools and jobs and incomes and career paths, all our lives lately, we're being told, it's all about you. Get the best education, the best school that you can, so that you can make the most money you can, so that you can live the nicest life that you can. Follow your heart, pursue your dreams, achieve, go for the gusto. And then, and then you come to church and you hear, for example, there are 7,000 unreached people groups in the world where, where there is no meaningful gospel witness. And maybe that starts to change how you think about what you're going to do with your life. Maybe it's a call to vocational missions. Maybe it just changes what you do for work or the way that you do your work or the goals that you have for what you earn through your work. Some of you are in the middle of conflict right now. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe a friend. Your, your rights have been trampled. You've been hurt. Maybe you're angry. If there's any comfort, any sympathy, any encouragement, any affection in Christ, what would it look like to be of the same mind and have the same love, to be in full accord, to, to intentionally ask God to help you pour encouragement and love into that person that you're in conflict with? Because your goal is not to seek your interests, but to move forward together in love and reflect what Christ has done for you in the middle of that conflict. And it's hard to give up our rights or what we think are our rights. I mean, I have a hard time giving up things that aren't even my rights. I mean, you ever notice this in traffic? Like you're, you're going along the road and you have a very clear plan and a goal of I'm going to be in that spot and then somebody comes and takes it from you. That was my spot. And that guy just pulled right over into where I was supposed to be. And, and what do you do? You say, oh, bless you, brother. I'm so glad you got ahead of me. I pray that the Lord just makes His grace to shine upon you today. No, we, we usually get angry and pray. That's not even something that belongs to us. We just create an idea in our head that it was my space. Maybe it's not traffic. Maybe, maybe you come into the worship center and somebody is sitting in the place where you normally sit. And out of a desire for something's going on over here, all right, I'm going to come over and talk to these people. <laughs> and then you realize, 
I want other people to know the fellowship that I have experienced in Christ, the connection, the love. So if somebody's sitting where I normally sit, that's awesome because that means there's new people here. Or maybe they're just talking to somebody they don't normally talk to. And, and then I, it goes beyond that. Now I, I start to think, you know, if I were new, if I were a new person in church, what would I want to know? What, what would I want to experience? And then that leads me to start noticing the people that I don't really know. And then I actually go up and introduce myself to them and, and connect with them and help them have a friendly greeting and a positive experience here because out of the participation in Christ that I have had here, I want others to come into that. You know, if we get really down to brass tacks, you know, somebody gets ahead of you in line at the picnic or the social and they get that dessert that you really wanted. Well, what if that's okay? I mean, I don't need any more weight for glory, right? But maybe it also gives me an opportunity to talk to someone else at the back of the line that I don't normally talk to. And, and I could rejoice that that person got the dessert that they wanted. And God is good, whether I get the caramel peanut Snickers bar or, or not. You put others' interests ahead of your own. That's, that's Jesus transforming us. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this uh, movie called Three Seasons. Uh, it was a foreign film set in Vietnam uh, as the country was transitioning to westernization. And it uh, follows uh, the series of lives that kind of intertwine. And the story of two of them is uh, Hai, who is a, a bicycle rickshaw driver, and Lan, who is, uh, to put it not just bluntly, a, a prostitute. They don't have a lot in common, but one day Hai sees Lon being chased by a couple of guys, and uh, he goes to pick her up on his rickshaw and gives her a ride to a hotel, and, and he's just struck with her because she's beautiful. And, and he waits around this hotel that she goes into for hours and, and picks her up and, and takes her back home. She, she lives in poverty, even though she's a, a high-class prostitute. She's way out of Hai's league, but she's still living in kind of the slums of Saigon, and she dreams one day of being able to actually live in that luxurious world of glamorous hotels with glittering chandeliers and soft beds that she only gets to visit but never actually live in. High wins a bicycle rickshaw race, and, and he gets a cash prize, a substantial sum of money for him. And he goes to Lan, and he asks to hire her for the night. He buys her a, a beautiful gown, takes her to a luxurious hotel, treats her to room service, a, a fancy dinner, and he says, I, he mis she misunderstands what he wants. He says, no, I, just, I just want you to have this night. I just want to watch you sleep in a comfortable bed in an air-conditioned room. I, I don't want anything from you. But you can't make sense of this. He must be trying to manipulate me. He must be trying to, to take advantage of me. She has a hard time believing him. But slowly, it, it dawns on her that he has used his wealth, his power, his advantage, not to serve himself, but, but to love and serve her. To, to bless her with no expectation of anything in return. And it, and it breaks down her defenses. And... And she says, why are you doing this? 
Why me? And she can't go back to her old life. His love, his generosity, his kindness, his self-sacrifice breaks down the walls around her heart. And it transforms her. Paul is saying, Jesus is not just a model that we're supposed to emulate. What changes us, what what breaks down pride and self-seeking is when we see Jesus as the one who is worthy to be worshipped. That he is our God, he is our Savior, he is our friend, he's our bridegroom. He's the one who picks us up and cleans us off and fills us with love and sympathy and kindness and compassion that that we don't deserve. And and out of of that, now that drive for glory, the, the drive for significance in all the ways that we tend to find it, it it starts to evaporate because we found our significance, we found our identity, we found love and fellowship and hope and forgiveness and joy in Christ that now starts to flow out of us because of Jesus in us. Paul is saying there there is more joy, there is more life in self-sacrifice and humility and other-centeredness than there is in a life of self-driven acquisition. Paul earlier said, you know, I I would rather die and go home and be with Jesus. That's that's the victory for me. But I think Jesus is probably going to have me stay here to serve you for your good. So if staying in prison... And accepting the humiliation of the cross leads to your glory, your joy, your growth. I will gladly do it. Because Jesus has transformed Paul's heart too. And and now he wants others to have what he's had. Because when we see who Jesus is, what he's done for us, it changes our priorities. It it changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we measure success. it, It makes a difference for everything. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. What can we say except thank you for your grace, your love, your comfort, your encouragement, your affection. Father, would you fulfill our joy by helping us, not just to emulate Jesus, but to live in him and with him, that that his life would increasingly make us of one mind, one love, that just like Jesus, we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more significant than ourselves. Oh, God, help us to trust and believe and know that that is life, that is glory, and that is joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.